Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to this live stream of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Hello to all of you listening, except for Brett Kavanaugh. (laughs) And that giggle you hear in the background is my guest this week. Very pleased to have her back on the show. This is her second appearance. Joining us on the line is Heidi Matthews. Heidi, how are you? Great. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, you're one of our very few repeat guests that we're having on. Uh, pleasure to have you on. Uh, just as a reminder to folks, you're an assistant professor at uh, Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Kavanaugh hearings and law and the Supreme Court and um, why originalism is the only way to understand uh, the Constitution. And uh, in fact, what did uh, Thomas Jefferson have for breakfast? On the morning of May second of eighteen oh four, these are these are really the pressing questions of legal interpretation today. So, how are you feeling? We've got we're we're four weeks in to the Kavanaugh stuff. It's all winding down. He was confirmed this past weekend. Uh, how, it was know, like you, yesterday. It was yesterday. So let's <laughs> so let's talk about let's let's reflect. How are you doing? How how is Heidi? How is Heidi doing in the wake of all of this? I was going to say, no, I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Remember, we're live. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I had a policy with the name Brett the other day, but um, we're not going to talk about that. Yeah, so I, <laughs> no, I, in the sense that I was feeling bad for them, you know, all the men that were called Brett in the world. Um, yeah, I know. It's pretty shit. How are you? Uh, you know, I've been better, but I have to tell you, like, I mean, it's been through conversations with people like you, uh, listeners of the show, people on Twitter, social media, uh, law scholars. There's been a lot of really great articles been written. I got to tell you in the past. Yeah, and weeks, a lot of bad ones. A lot of bad articles, too. We're <laughs> going to talk about some of those as well as the as the show continues. But, um, you know, for sure, I think that I, I've increased my level of knowledge about the Supreme Court exponentially uh, throughout the course of this process. I hope that's been true for other people. I'm not entirely sure that's the case. I think there's still a lot of confusion about what is the Supreme Court? How does it function? What's the process look like in, in terms of taking courses before, uh, taking cases rather before the Supreme Court? Who does that? How do they rule? On what grounds do they rule? All of these, I think, are very live questions because they inform the debates that are going on. Uh, they're, they're sort of white hot right now about what to do in the wake of the shift to the right of the Supreme Court. Oh, we don't inevitable. get too excited because we're going to abolish it soon. <laughs> well, if you if you pay any attention to left Twitter, you're just going to abolish. <laughs> you it. might be wasting your precious time. <laughs> that is possible. That's quite possible. I'll be serious now. But we have you've got a piece out and uh, the conversation, I um, and I think it's a really important piece. It's a little different from how I sort of open the show. We'll return to those questions about packing the courts, abolishing the courts, and exactly how the court functions in just a moment. But your piece dives in a little bit more in terms of like what what was the meaning of this process, right? I mean, I think that all of us can get behind the fact that Brett Kavanaugh is a piece of shit. 
He's he's a scumbag. He's a he's a liar. He he's perjured himself uh, dozens of times. He belongs to a cabal of right wing elitist assholes who, quite frankly, if they were to somehow uh, disappear from the planet tomorrow, we'd all be better for it. But with that being said, the attacks on him throughout the course of these confirmation hearings are set up to have some very contradictory consequences for progressives yeah. and for leftists. I think in many years to come, and you talk about the way these were her- uh, carried it forth in terms of being a show trial. So give us a yeah. little bit, give us a little appreciation of your article here. Give us a, a summary of, of your case and exactly what your concerns are. in writing. Yeah. So I kind of, I, you know, I've been trying to write this piece all week and I, I went back and forth and was struggling more than I normally do actually with this. And, uh, and the piece is called why the Kavanaugh hearings were a show trial gone bad. And I think there's, I mean, there's a lot going on even in, <laughs> um, in that title in, in the sense title. that they're like, yeah, so they're all of like layers to the onion in, in the title alone. So, you know, usually, uh, so, I mean, I could ask you, like, what do you think a show trial means? It's a bad thing, right? So the intuitively, when we talk about a, a, a trial that is somehow too political or unjustifiably political or some kind of spectacle that's meant to perform something that is either procedurally or substantively illegitimate in society, like that's what we refer to as a show trial. Um, in other, in other words, a trial that doesn't sort of follow the regular staid principles of the rule of law, uh, you know, um, impartial adjudication, all these things that we associate with liberal legalism and the court structure that we currently live in. Uh, and those are the things that give us faith in the, in the court structure and make us think that it's, not just a court structure, but the legal structure, make us think it's a good thing, make us think it can help us vindicate our rights, um, make real um, our, our human rights, right, or our labor rights, or whatever we might be interested in um, as people on the left. And so normally a show trial is, we, we'll call something a show trial when we think that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't do that. But there's another meaning. And so you know, when we talk about show trials, right, we will typically think of like um, Soviet show trials. So you go back to <laughs> Stalin in the nineteen uh, late nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, uh, when you know there was sort of it's known as a is a is an abnegation of of uh, you know the rule of law or or uh, impartial judgments being rendered, sort of the the hyper politicization of what are supposed to be more impartial processes, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I wanted to do like even in the title, but in the in the substance of the piece itself to really kind of gesture towards that in particular, because it's a piece written self consciously from the left, right? But also to really try and make sense of like, all right, from a political theory perspective, like what's going on here. And I think actually the um, the frame of the show trial is really useful in figuring out what's happened with um, the Kavanaugh nominations. Uh, and I and I do encourage us to think, you know, of them of this whole episode not as over as such, right? I mean, it's over in the fact in the sense that he's been nominated, or sorry, confirmed. Um, but I don't think we should, we should forget what happened. We need to sit down and really sort of do a really thorough and thick autopsy, politically speaking of, of the scenario. And so anyway, from, there's an interesting way in which show trials are not actually a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, so I talk a bit in the piece, uh, about political theorist, Judith Schklar, who was writing in the sixties. She has this famous book, um, legalism law, morals, and political trials. And she's really theorizing um, the utility of international criminal trials, which is one of my main areas of research. 
and her whole idea there uh, is she's trying to come up with a, a reason why those trials, which tend to flout quite obviously the regular aspects of the rule of law, right? So the principles of, of legality, which is to say that you can't retroactively hold people accountable for criminal activity, for example. All of those very basic things in our legal system were flouted um, with the original international criminal trials. She talks quite a bit. Um, she focuses in, on quite explicitly Nuremberg in her book. But she also then has this very short section on trying to think of, okay, what does it mean to think about the show trial domestically and how can there actually be such a good thing as a, uh, sorry, such a thing as a good domestic show trial. Mm-hmm. And her idea there is to say, okay, well, if the situation is such that basically an internal enemy uh, needs to be dealt with by the existing constitutional structure, one way of doing that is to deploy a show trial. In other words, to go after that individual or group of individuals, not because of what they've done in the past, Mm -hmm. but with a very forward-looking view to what they might do in the future, right? So this is completely contrary to the way that the um, legal system ordinarily operates and the way that what we understand as fairness plays, plays itself out, you know? And she says, you know, that sounds bad, but it's okay domestically if the substantive political commitments that we're pursuing are actually good. And at the end of the day, the law can can sort of resolve itself in terms of internal reasoning such that we can, you know, we can make these exceptions somehow make sense. So all of that is quite a long-winded way of getting to actually what I think from a political theoretical perspective was happening, whether or not the Democrats knew it, and whether certainly whether or not they want to admit it today, um, what was happening with the, the Kavanaugh process and the way in which they turned specifically to Me Too as a source of power um, with the Christine Blasey Ford um, subsequent fifth day of hearings. So the argument then is very, really quite simply that, in fact, they, the Democrats made this wager. They thought that they could really pull on the, on the anger and the energy around the so-called Me Too movement in order to sort of shore up the power numerically that they knew they didn't have um, in the Senate in order to sort of, you know, break through somehow and come out on top or at least create a delay such that we would, you know, run up against the midterms or something like this. And in order to do that, they needed to posit Kavanaugh as an internal enemy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So Kavanaugh needed to become this kind of political enemy that had to be somehow eliminated. Or if we want to use Sklar's words, and I quote one small quote of hers in the piece, she talks about the destruction, the disgrace and the disrepute of a political opponent. And so for, for the Democrats, in my reading anyway, turning to Me Too and capitalizing on that in order to affect or to try to affect that public shaming and disgrace of Kavanaugh seems to be their strategy and it, and it fails. There's there's a lot to unpack. I think it failed, but that's kind of, that's, (laughs) you know, only a 1200 word piece, but all of that background political theory is sort of informing the analysis. Right. 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 I think, I think that's really interesting because on the one hand uh, you talk about a show trial, which is in many senses, something that uh, is to be 
you know, avoided. <laughs> it's not something that we look to in a, in a generally sometimes. In a positive sense. That's why uh, square is really interesting, though. Yeah, we think of it as bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can be good. Now, I mean, I think it's very clear that Stalin's uh, persecution of the old Bolsheviks or whomever during those show trials was not necessarily, uh, you know, in, in order to rectify a wrong, but it was to send a message to would-be political opponents in the present, right? And so I think there, there's a certain kind of presentism of the show trial that I think is what people find it to be um, so distasteful or perhaps or so sort of a sort of cynical. And in terms of we think of a trial, you're addressing certain kinds of facts, certain kinds of things that happened in a in, a, in the past, right, that are yeah. to be judged uh, of allegedly ob- you know, objectively and uh, a judgment is to be rendered on those past uh, infractions. Uh, infractions or whatever or what have you. But the, 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 the nature of a show trial is that it's a very kind of presentist gesture, which is very Well, it's forward-oriented, in fact, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. right, right. So you talk about Me Too-ism. You have written elsewhere. Uh, we talked last time you were on the show, we talked about Me Too-ism, but I don't want to assume that anybody sort of has those arguments under their belt. It's a very, very controversial topic by anyone. Uh, we, I think you can be very easily misunderstood as as taking a sort of a right wing stab at me too <laughs> uh, right so we want to be clear uh, about exactly what we're going after when we talk about me too ism how yeah. has me too ism developed as a sort of bastardization of right. i think maybe some of the more positive impulses that underlie that particular moment yeah so there again there's a lot going on there but i think the simplest way of dealing with that is to say something like the following that essentially me too ism is an attempt at constructing a some kind of coherent or operational political system or ideology from an edifice of material right so individual mm-hmm. contributions right in other words individual me too stories that then sort of serve to make up something that people call a movement um and the ism is when we come in and we go oh this thing that we've been calling a movement which is this like agglomeration of stuff and then also a bunch of policy proposals now that we're seeing lopped on top of that there's a lot of stuff going on there this soup we're going to then package that soup up and tie a bow around it and say actually this is some kind of like political program Mm -hmm. that makes sense internally as well as externally in the sense that it can be deployed to achieve a given program of actual political and material goals. And so I don't think, so the ism, in other words, refers to the fact that I don't think um, whatever is going on with me too, which might be good or bad or whatever, you know, put that aside for a moment. I don't think you can then repackage that as an actual political project. Right. So I say in the piece, me too is not, it's not a politics. It's not a political program. And that's part of the reason I think why it fails, in fact, in not why Me, me Too failed, but why the Democrats failed uh, in in harnessing, you know, this energy of Me Too to try and affect their goal of either delaying or outright dismantling Kavanaugh's nomination. Right. So I think we, we've talked in, uh, in other terms about Me Tooism and the way that you and I have talked off air in the, this past week. We've been talking furiously to plan for this episode <laughs> to think around the uh, the kind of implications. You know, I mean, the news was breaking every other hour in terms of how how we how people thought this would turn out. Of course, I think this, the most cynical among us uh, were, were correct, which seems to be the case these days. 
um, yeah. sort of an invitation to cynicism. <laughs> if you want to be right, I'm uh, just, already there. <laughs> just stake out the most cynical uh, outcome possible and you'll probably be right. But um, in any case, we were, we were talking about this a lot. And I think that the, both of us have some serious concerns about this kind of combination of this kind of cynical, technocratic, neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party and the way that they're wielding Me Tooism. Yeah. As, as a kind of like mobile political technology in the service of what could become very quickly a sort of new McCarthyism. <laughs> um, and I mean, I, there's, there's a lot there. I'm throwing out a lot of jargon. I'm combining a lot of things that don't necessarily, uh, you know, obviously belong together. What does Me Tooism and, and new uh, neo-McCarthyism have to do with one another? But I think that I think that we might have seen a dry run, a rehearsal. Yeah if you will, in this Kavanaugh hearing as to how this will play out in the years to come in order for the, the Dianne Feinsteins, the, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Chuck Schumer's of the world to, to maintain their tenuous grasp on the Democratic Party as it stands. And it will be an increasing way for them to maintain legitimacy as they're up against this kind of social democratic wave. That we've yeah. seen in uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other people in the past a couple of months. And you see how very quickly all of that stuff is silenced, right? You see very yeah. quickly that the AOC and Julia Salazar's victory and uh, Taleb, who's going to be a, a, a join, who's going to join AOC in the House of Representatives, I think out of Michigan. Uh, you know, the, there's been a, a hush that's that's been I can sort of violently <laughs> uh, instilled over over that excitement. I think uh, in the course of this outcome. So, what do you make of that? How does Me Tooism converge with a sort of kind of uh, neo McCarthyism? What, what do we? What can yeah. we expect uh, in, in in the years to come from that? So I, I need to do more, and I and I thought this to myself. So there was a I started to get into my own thoughts on on parallels between the um, Kavanaugh situation and and you know McCarthyism in all of its iterations during the the, the years of the Red Scare, and and I and I need personally to, decided I need to do more work on that before writing anything in this piece about it. But that being said, I think what we're really trying to get at is this idea that political opponents can be silenced for reasons that uh, <laughs> don't have to actually do with them being any sort of threat that deserves the sort of silencing they're getting. Does that make sense? So, so setting, up, um, setting up the specter of a political enemy that needs to be dealt with on the basis of pursuant to Me Tooism on the basis of some kind of threatening capacity because they're, you know, a sexual predator or have this weird past that we're not sure about or whatever, right? So we end up, we create this um, scary thing that needs to be excised, mm -hmm. right, from the political community. And Me Too is a way of doing that. And, and we've certainly seen that, you know, uh, in terms of public life over the last year now and sort of fits and starts in political life. Yeah, but the way in which uh, this really became the concerted democratic strategy with Kavanaugh is so fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, 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 it was interesting because I kept seeing on places like Twitter, you know, women, because they were women tweeting, but a few men, but anyway, tweeting things like the Kavanaugh confirmation process is effectively uh, a referendum on Me Too. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and and if that's the way we're thinking about this, you know, you can see how how the political sides are like are set up and how 
uh, it's not over here, right? And so, and it's very clear, right? So, so Kavanaugh's not forgetting that he's been labeled as a sexual offender, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. He'll never forget that. Liberals and progressives and leftists are not going to forget him We're forever, as far as I can. I mean, I know it's like the day after, but I think we're going to associate him with the person who's a sexual offender, right? As opposed to potentially a torturer or whatever. And I think he'll um, come to regret the fact that the yeah. FBI investigation was so shoddy and, and was, was itself a show investigation. If, no, absolutely. It was a show yeah. investigation as opposed to a show trial, just in, a, in the opposite direction, if you will. Exactly. Um, and I think yeah. he's going to come to regret that because, uh, he'll, you know, despite him being on the court, you're right, he's going to carry around – He's going to carry around, whether rightly or wrongly. I mean, whatever. He, he appears to be an asshole no matter what's wrong with him. But at the yeah. same time, I think we need to be careful about how we how we uh, sort of assess these pirate victories. On the one hand, Absolutely. I'm not going to cry any crocodile tears for Brett Kavanaugh. No, of course not. On the other hand, um, you know, we need to be weary of the way that this mobile political technology, as we're calling it, <laughs> uh, in our overly academic, overly jargoned way. Is, uh, you love your little term. It's great. It's I, I, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm enthralled <laughs> with it. I, really, I'm just trying to get cited, Heidi. I'm trying to get cited. Everybody out there, cite me. Uh, but like he does, he has the hashtag on his face, right? It's like the, yeah. the Scarlet A is like now this this hashtag or whatever. And I, but I actually hashtag. think that's important, you know? So so right. it's important in the sense it's not going away. And, and I don't know that this is going to be like the last time that this kind of strategy is going to, is going to be deployed. And what's important is not that we're, you know, it's of course, so let's be very, very clear. We're not saying it's, we should not have investigated what are clearly credible claims, right? That's not the point. The point is that the investigation of those obviously credible or not very, very clearly credible claims um, of Ford against, against Kavanaugh stand in for actual politics, Mm -hmm. right? So, that they stand in for having to actually move through um, all of the other substantive elements of his record that we should be looking at. Um, but also just the doing of politics, like at any sort of grassroots level, right? Cause like what the Democrats don't have to do anything. All they have to do in order, in order to attempt to, to defrock or unseat somebody like Kavanaugh is to bring in letters and testimony of women who say that they've been harmed by him. But political action itself is somehow taken off the table. It's not necessary. They don't need it. And then once, once he's gotten rid of, or once somebody else has gotten rid of or whatever, they go back to doing business as normal, like neoliberal business as normal. Right. Exactly. Well, Keith Ellison, uh, the six term democratic congressman, um, who uh, narrowly lost uh, a bid after the 2016 elections for the uh, the DNC. Keith Ellison has been attacked in the sort of Me Too moment, despite the fact that a state Democratic investigation has a f- for, uh, officially called the, f- the physical abuse claim unsubstantiated. Uh, so it has been investigated. It has gone through some very um, objective and careful processes to try to assess the, the veracity of the claims or the seriousness or whatever else. And he's been... He's been um, let off the hook, um, I think rightly so, but yet it, it really kind of mars his campaign for attorney general of that state, and um, and who's to, who's to say exactly if, if he'll win. And from what I hear, his Republican challenger in Michigan is a really nasty character and has put forward a lot of uh, very uh, labor, you know, anti-labor uh, legislation and all the rest of it, but yeah. the, nice, the nice folks of Minnesota, uh, you know, uh, can't bring it, can't bring themselves to be you know, uh, strident supporters of someone like Ellison, who, despite being cleared, now carries around the yeah. per- the purloined hashtag, uh, if you will. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and again, none of this is to say that people, whatever, uh, offenders, for lack of a better word, right, because they haven't gone through the criminal process, but let's just use that word, offenders of sexual misconduct in general, you know, shouldn't have to bear some kind of like, I mean, again, not that he's this particular person's not an offender, but even those who have who have or are found to be somehow responsible for something shouldn't bear some sort of public stigma. Mm-hmm. It's though the real worry is the way in which that public stigma and the process of of stigmatization and the maintenance of stigmatization and the way in which we we police, right? There's a huge policing characteristic yeah, right. to maintaining the stigmatization. Yeah. The way in which that stands in for politics and also distracts and obscures from things that, you know, we should actually be focusing on. Right. And it's hard to say, I look, I haven't paid much attention to this uh, friend of the show, former guest, Daniel Marins, uh, Huffington Post writer uh, has, has written some pieces on the Ellison stuff. You know, I, I don't know if there's any finagling at the DNC level. If, if uh, Tom Perez is, is, has his hand in, in this in terms, if, if there are any kind of Democrat democratic party apparatchiks who are trying to dispense with Ellison in this way, if the order has come down from on high to sacrifice him to the mob, uh, despite the yeah. fact that he was cleared of these charges, you know, I, who's to say, I, I don't want to say this is like we're, we're relitigating Perez V Ellison, you know, uh, from 2016, but at the same time, it's a little bit suspicious that a guy who uh, was leading the charge for a progressive turn in the democratic party has now sort of become a persona non grata, for many Democrats and the fact that uh, he's, he's, he's likely to lose his race now to a very, very bad person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Despite yeah. the fact that he was cleared. And so, and that's happened in several jurisdictions, including um, yeah. I've written about this, but including in Ontario where I live right now. Yeah. 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 I mean, his seems to be the most egregious. I think in other cases, like there's some more, there's some gray areas and I know you have some strong opinions about the gray areas. <laughs> uh, but in, in any case, like Ellison's case seems to be, by far the most egregious uh, sure. in terms of of it not holding any water, and the accusations themselves didn't come from the. It's it's a, it's a long convoluted story. We don't need to get into it. In fact, I don't yeah. even know the details of the case quite enough. But it's it's easy to see how this kind of Me Tooism is is going to potentially spur on a sort of a new McCarthyism. And yeah. so let's let's talk about why it failed, right? Because I think again. The Democratic Party, the the neo when I say that I mean the the neoliberal mainstream elites who who run the party and and like I said have a tenuous grasp in this era of the, the Democratic Socialist wave. They've made two sets of promises. They've said number one, if you elect us, we'll we'll protect the courts, and number two, um, Roe will save women and f- serve as the kind of um, you know progressive act of par excellence or whatever else. So there's two yeah. things we want to do. Number one. Can the court save us? Number two, what is the nature of Roe and why is it wrongheaded? What right. is, I mean, there are a lot of questions here, but I really want to break down exactly why Roe is not exactly uh, what most folks uh, make it out to be, what the flaws are of that particular law and, uh, and so forth. So I know you have a lot to say right. here. Um, okay. So, so, but, but you did say, why, why did this whole like effort fail? Right. I mean, I, so I like, you know, we can come up with the, <laughs> difficult to say i think on 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 like a very basic level they just didn't have the numbers right and the and whatever crazy weirdness the democrats are trying to open up space for to happen somehow didn't come our way and it was just actually power doesn't really give a shit about me too essentially right Mm -hmm. so um i mean i'm sure we could we could say more about why this particular effort failed maybe others in the future would succeed or whatever but i think whether or not it 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 won or not i mean look at a basic level, I'm in favor 
of, of tactics designed to take down people who are going to cause imminent harm politically. And I think Kavanaugh is one of those people, right? Mm. And so if it had turned out that, you know, the Me Too, Me Tooization of, <laughs> of, of the Democratic attack had actually been successful, I would have said, yay, fantastic, we got rid of Kavanaugh. But then I would still have said, okay, right, but there are costs that come with this kind of strategy, right? Um, and so it, it, whether or not it, it succeeded is, is sort of less interesting to me in the, in the present analytical moment than sort of figuring out what, what using or deploying that kind of strategy, or I mean, it's not really a strategy, but that kind of strategy means for the more substantive issues. And I think that's where... Um, that's where we come in with talking about actually the role of the courts in a progressive or left political project. And, and specifically, as an example, the utility of precedents like, like Roe to actually achieving the sort of material outcomes that dedicated leftists want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, so fair. just to make clear for everyone, right? So, of course, I would want to have seen <laughs> Kavanaugh gone at any cost. I mean, I said that for a long time, but I would have still been concerned, um, even if it had succeeded, not that I like to entertain counterfactuals, but anyway, um, with the costs and benefits of that kind of a move. So can you just say more then um, with, with respect to like how we should get into those two substantive issues about the role of the courts and then the utility of, of a precedent like Roe? Yeah, I think so. More, more explicitly, my, my concern here is I think that people need to acknowledge and be, be big that you need to you need to do some mansplaining here. You need to mansplain. <laughs> We call that vag-splaining. You need to vag-splain a couple of things to my audience because I think one of the things that the progressives and even good solid lefties sort of fail to recognize in this process and when they start screaming and shrieking and wailing about the loss of Roe is like, you know, it's it's really – it's these mainstream okay. third-way Democrats who they only have themselves to blame for this because there's, a certain, there's certain kinds of – there's certain ways, right, that Roe – and say Obergefell, for example, Obergefell v. Hodges – Um, which reversed the state's ban on same-sex marriage. Um, The way that these were couched in very individualist, libertarian-style claims, and that's how they were sort of passed, and that's how they've been sort of picked away at in in terms of Roe. So talk to me a little bit about how the loss of Roe and the potential loss of Obergefell in the new era of the court is a result of the kind of individualist kind of libertarian way in which these laws were crafted. Because I think that, you know, the Democrats need to be held to account for this. These are not positive (laughs) rights to abortion. This is not a positive right to getting married. These are, uh, it's something very different. And I think that when people, I think when good solid lefties fall for the, the way in which the Democrats have valorized the court, Mm-hmm. I think they fail to recognize exactly how these how these laws how these case law function. So explain that to people. So yeah, started with that. So let me try and get into that in a way that makes sense. And tell me if if you want to change direction or or would like me to specify something. But sure, sure. one way of doing that is to actually talk about the nature of the legal system that we find ourselves living in today. In other words, we're in a, in a liberal, small L liberal system, right? Which is dedicated a to pursuing concrete political objectives, primarily through the vehicle of individual rights and the right to property. Right. Right. So those are the two core commitments 
of liberalism as such. Mm. And that's the structure upon which the whole of the legal system is built. All of that is completely contingent and a product of history, but it's a fact that that's the system that we live within. But it's important to recognize that it's contingent because these things can be shifted and changed and they internally and as well as externally. But it's recognizing that, you know, the, really the whole system from start to finish is built on what we call liberal legalism, which is really that really strong commitment to formal ideas of justice as opposed to really meaty, substantive ideas of justice, right? So the law is concerned with, like, procedural justice, with adversarialism, with an uh, atomistic conception of of how humans relate to one another, and not with, like, group-based rights or communitarian claims or um, other ways of parsing what substantive equality might actually look like, right? So a really simple way of thinking through that is to say that we're really concerned in the legal system with formal equality and not with substantive equality. Right, right. So, so the opportunity the opportunity to have rights, the opportunity to be equal, uh, as opposed to the, the reality of, in terms of the way that inequalities are materially faced by people. Yeah, so it's the opportunity to be so basically it it makes the the prospect of equality contingent no sorry not contingent but dependent on individuals figuring out a way to make their private rights work to achieve that outcome, right? So the system will give you a series of basically rights to bargain in the marketplace of goods and ideas. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. as an individual, and then, but you're responsible then for trying for trying to figure out how substantively to get to the result at the end of the day. So, so this is like, this is true of the legal system in general, and that is that observation is a core part of rights critiques of as they have been playing out in legal theory and philosophy for many many decades. Right. So it's not something you're making up. This is core. But but it's it's not. So, I mean, even I, I spend years like even after three years of law school, it's hard for students to like accept this fact, you know, <laughs> because in general, most people. Right. So even legal education is not designed to obstruct the hierarchy of the um, profession and system. Uh, and anything that does that, um, like the kinds of ideas that we're talking about right now, uh, is really frowned upon, right? So in other words, all of this is to say the law is profoundly conservative right. in that when we talk about the rule of law even, right? So if you look on Twitter, you'll see all of these liberals going, oh my God, there's the rule of law is under attack. Blah, blah, blah. Blumenfeld went nuts about the rule of law with Kavanaugh. The rule of law, as though this is some kind of like sacred cow, it's not. The rule of law simply means is a commitment to procedural and formal equality. It's got nothing to do with substantive equality. It's got no inbuilt policies or priorities, and it's really profoundly conservative. Right. So that's like an overview. Is that helpful? I think so. I think so. Let's talk. Okay. Let's talk. So let's talk ex- uh, more explicitly about exactly how Roe yeah. is constructed, uh, how it's been yeah. under threat, and again, we'll have to sort of gla- uh, gloss through this very, very quickly yeah. because I think we no, want to no, come no, back. I'll try and get through. I think that's important for setting up, though, like the the system. So, so Roe. Yeah, so the this. reason why Roe is not the panacea that 
um, liberals and also leftists. So they think it is. And it's really interesting to note, right, that like even like really whoever, whatever, hardcore, whatever that means, leftists are really attached to Roe. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in the same way, like they are like on the same standing there in the protest with right. the dedicated liberal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think that's what's been I think that's what's been so unsettling for me. And I, I've, I've posted a little bit about this on social media and gotten a little heat for it. But, you know, I think for me, the difficulty here is it's very hard to tell. Right. I mean, a lot of people are very angry about this process. Uh, they're angry at Kavanaugh. They're angry at the Senate. They're angry very justifiably at a lot of people who who deserve a lot of. Um, I mean, let's be honest. We're good socialists. We don't have a lot of nice things to say about any of those, any of these people or institutions. <laughs> However, the difficulty, I think, that with the problem, I think, where it becomes problematic is that it's very hard. It's in many cases impossible to tell uh, at these protests. Okay, who's the who's the sort of wishy washy liberal? You know, who's who's got the hashtag still with her? Uh, you know, uh, a tattoo on their forearm versus like, you know, uh, who, who are the good quality, uh, you know, principled socialists out here? Because yeah. it seems like the demands and the out the outcry and the analysis uh, is, is very similar and at least overlapping between those two audiences. And, and, and that's that's bothersome in some senses, because you're right to say that Roe is not the panacea that, that we thought it was. So what is it? What is Roe? What is a guarantee? Just as a as a um, sidebar, there isn't it interesting the way in which hashtag still with her really blends into believe women. Right? It really does. It really <laughs> it's basically the same thing. It really does. It's also yeah. well, it's also equally uh, just banal and just bloodless and contentless, right? Like uh, not to not to say that you shouldn't believe women, but 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 what no, am I po- it's like, But 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 it's just it's it's. Um, it's just a hollow gesture. It doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't produce any substantive, uh, substantive rights. It doesn't actually accomplish anything um, other, other than sort of uh, reinvigorating a base that has lost faith in these, uh, you know, in these uh, troglodytes who sort of still yeah. manage to have a death grip on the Democratic Party. Yeah, absolutely. So just to say again, me too is not political. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so on to Roe. Yeah. So, so Roe does a few things. So, so it's clear to, um, sorry, it's important to be clear rather about what Roe does and doesn't do. Roe is a Supreme Court decision for 1973. Um, I think people believe that it creates a right to abortion. Um, I think that's what people think. It doesn't, in fact. Mm-hmm. So Roe v. Wade does not create a legal right to obtain an abortion. It's really um, a negative right. So in other mm-hmm. words, it's a really sort of em- empty right. It's not a meaty substantive right. Um, and it says that actually uh, states don't have the right to criminalize the, the provision of abortion in certain circumstances. Um, in other words, before the, fetal, the fetus um, is viable. Right. So it prohibits criminalization in those circumstances. Um, It's something very different from the way in which people tend to think about um, Roe. And it does so by creating a right to privacy or basically they they filter this through the woman's right to privacy pursuant to the 14th Amendment. In other words, uh, it's a really, really private right. This is not something that's conceived of in the public sphere of public political decision making. It's about choice. It's about individual choice. It's about creating basically the ability to go and buy an abortion on the healthcare marketplace, essentially, Mm -hmm. really, to be very frank about it. That's what's going on. So it's really, you know, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Or it didn't have to be that way. So there are myriad other ways in which the law, but also just the political process could have been 
invoked in order to achieve what we wanted, which was free, not free. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> in Canada it was free, but we want, uh, in the U S you want, um, at least safe, uh, legal and accessible abortion. Right. And then today, I mean, leftists would want free abortion as well. So, and that's not what you got with Roe at all. And so I, I think it's, that's important to point out to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that the political aspects here are, couldn't be more stark for socialists today. And I think it's really yeah. important for us not to fall in line behind the liberals in this particular case. And I think some people have sort of, you know, people who are otherwise uh, friends of mine, fellow traveler, comrades have sort of said, you know, Adam, you know, I, I don't really like the way you're attacking this particular uh, sentiment. I think it's it's not in line with, uh, you should at least be more sympathetic to this because people are have a lot of like strongly held uh, emotions behind all of this and it's like yeah it's precisely because we have these strongly held emotions behind this that we should we should demonstrate that that these pseudo anti-political battles are 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 fucking they're impotent i mean they're not going anywhere they're flaccid they're bloodless they're gutless it's an act right i mean since 1973 when roe v wade uh was issued yeah where have the democrats been Right, the mainstream neoliberal Democrats, right, as they became in the in the late '80s, early '90s, up to Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016, where have they been in producing a positive law, uh, a positive right, which guarantees accessible, safe, and even hell-free abortions for women? I mean, it was up through like you know 2008, I believe, the 2008 primary, where Hillary Clinton was challenged over her her claim that what is it, uh, abortion should be um, um, rare, and what, what, what was the, buzz, the buzzword, <laughs> yeah, the buzz yeah. line that the the buzzword they used in abortion should be rare, mm-hmm. and um, um, basically they want it to be like your last choice, and uh, abortion should be rare, safe, and legal. Uh, safe, legal, and rare. Anyway, so, so the not idea, free. not free, not certainly not free. I mean, legal, even or even affordable. Legal is like okay. Uh, I mean, we see which which word. Uh, there's a hierarchy of words there, right? So rare is number one. Number two is yeah. safe, which unfortunately, as we should talk about, I think plays into the way that Roe has been attacked, right? And when they say legal, they mean legal in terms of defending Roe. Yeah. They don't mean like, hey, we need to produce uh, a really ambitious and radical uh, piece of legislation that ensures a positive right to abortion. No. They mean it needs to be legal in terms of Roe needs to be upheld forever and always, uh, which was the only justification for ever voting for these dipshits over the, over the past several <laughs> decades. You know, and we see where that's gone. Um, totally. Absolutely. So say more about Roe in terms of how it has been assailed and attacked on many grounds uh, ever since. Because I think it's a a test case for exactly how these kind of um, these libertarian inspired rights uh, get us nowhere and and why that we definitely should not be championing them uh, uh, from coming from the left. I mean, like I get it, you know, using there are, you know, there are there are moments when, you know, we need to turn to rights that are extant and accessible in order to achieve like really, you know, something like if you're pregnant now and you need an abortion, you need to avail yourself of the right and that's fine, whatever. And you want to support that within the legal system. All that's fine. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't for people who are materially in need of, of these rights that they shouldn't make use of them in the moment, but from a much for pulling out and taking a longer, a much longer view perspective. Um, I think that's the kind of question that you're getting in. So in the, in the sort of aftermath of Roe, what's really interesting is that we see uh, nearly immediate, very quick chipping away at actually what the potential of Roe even could have meant within the very, the very um, neoliberal constraints and even it's holding 
uh, came down in. And so there was this case in 1980 at the Supreme Court that had to do with an amendment to the Social Security Act, which basically sought to severely limit federal reimbursement to states for um, the provision of abortion services under Medicaid, right? And so the question was whether or not this was contrary to the holding in Roe, and the government said, no, of course not. (laughs) So you can have, so what it meant to have a negative, in other words, what it meant to have a negative right to abortion meant that, yeah, you can go get one without it being criminalized or whatever, but it doesn't mean that your choice needs to be positively facilitated through concrete um, supportive government action, which would include actually federally funding the woman's choice. Right. right. So, so already, so, so these things, so there, it's important. I think it's really important to point out that the nefarious effect of Roe and its progeny is only not only, but in large part made possible through the fact that Roe is embedded within a certain sort of attitude in the American corporate and legal context towards the um, healthcare itself as a right or not. Right. right? right, So the idea that healthcare is this issue of like, it's basically this, this uh, corporate thing, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a commodity you can buy in the marketplace. Right. And so it was because of that fact that the government was able to say, we don't have to pay for it. You know, mm-hmm. if we can, if the, uh, if America at, in 1980 had thought or today thought differently about, um, what it mean what healthcare means in relation to the law, uh, that sort of an, uh, an outcome would have, would have been certainly less possible or maybe not possible at all. So it's, it bears pointing that, that out as well, that so much of this comes down to that federal funding case, um, which people don't tend to talk about in outside of the academy as much. And so then you've got, I mean, the whole bunch of stuff happens, you don't need to get through the details, but we'll fast forward to Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And then we've got the imposition of this new standard, which is to say that no, actually, states, states do have a legitimate interest in fetal life um, up until viability that was determined already in Roe. And then the question was, how are we supposed to determine when a state is acting in a way in a way uh, that would ensure either maternal health or its right in fetal viability, how do we figure out you know when that's gone too far essentially? And so the court says that you can, states can't put an undue burden in the path of a woman who's trying to make her private decision um, about whether to obtain abortion services or not. Basically, what's really important to note here is that Casey confirmed, right? It didn't shift at all. It really solidly confirmed that um, what Roe does is to create a negative right, right? And so now all of the litigation and also the legislative activity is really around this question of, of what constitutes an undue burden. Um no, this is really great. Actually, this is really yeah. good. I'm sorry. Apologies to you and to the uh-huh. audience. I'm really under the weather. I'm feeling like crap. I've got it. I've got the sickness. Uh, so uh, thanks for for uh, you know jumping in here and and taking charge of, of this episode. Uh, I'm I'm really learning a lot here. So let's let me, let me drag myself through the remainder of this episode here. But uh, the, where I want to go next, I think we're we're set up for it very well. Which is to say that uh, understanding, taking Roe as a test case for what is wrong with the, the way that sort of uh, kind of the defense of, of legal, legal, certain legal actions has, has been undertaken by the, the neoliberal mainstream wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah. And then assessing the kind of um, 
the claims that are emerging from the progressive and uh, the progressive left right now. And there's two of them, right? I think we can take one a little bit more seriously than the other. The first one is abolish the court. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I take I take abolish the court to be along the same lines as abolish capitalism. Yes, I'm I'm broadly in favor of both of them. Uh, however, uh, I, I do think that we need to actually have a little bit of concreteness to those claims in order so that they, you know, become a little bit more than just slogans that you put on yeah. T-shirts. Um, uh, we, we don't want to be a part of the uh, the fuck you dad left. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so we need to have uh, some more substantive kind of demands that can be, uh, you know, actualized and, mm-hmm. um, and pursued uh, via political principled, you know, a pr- 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 political action. The second one is to pack the court, right? Which is to say that we can't achieve any political action, any progressive or radical political action, given uh, the direction that the court has gone over the last couple of decades. And so we need to we need to look toward to strategies uh, such as FDR. You know, FDR attempted in the 1930s in the midst of the New Deal project to try to yeah. pack the court. So so take it from nine to fifteen, and obviously those would be. Um, progressive justices as soon as the presidency and Congress was held by Democrats. Jed Purdy was interviewed by Megan Day and Jacobin. Uh I've put that in the show notes for people to check out. (laughs) And uh, he had a really interesting take on this and he's building on Sam Moyne as well. Sam Moyne had a piece in Boston review also in the show notes. Uh And um, I think Jed Purdy's attempt to think through the kind of structural impediment of the Supreme Court is a little bit more enlightened. And he says that uh, justices instead would have 18-year terms and uh, they would rotate every so every two years we would have a new justice. Um, so you'd, you'd keep the same nine, I suppose. They'd have 18-year terms every two years. Uh, we, would, we would rotate out and, and, and uh, a new justice be installed in accordance with the kind of political climate that exists in the executive and legislative branch in that particular moment. Mm-hmm. What do you make of efforts like this? Is does the court really well, stand? That's not packing the court. That's not exactly. It's not. It's it's, it's, an, alter, <laughs> no. it's, an, it's an alternative uh, alternative gesture. That's tinkering at the margins. That's tinkering at the margins, but in some senses, it's a little bit more. Which, um, in general, I'm very against, but in this case, actually makes more sense. Right. Well, it, it potentially has more radical implications or radical outcomes per se, because as Sam Moyne writes, the juristocracy is this uh, is this kind of belief that uh, these unelected. Supreme Court justices have the ultimate say and and the ultimate check on our democratic impulses par excellence. Packing the court doesn't overturn the logic of the juristocracy. It just increases the number of good guys, hopefully, anyway, on the bench. It doesn't overturn the logic. It doesn't overturn liberal legalism. Doesn't overturn liberal legalism. Right. It doesn't so that's overturn. My, that's my. I'm I'm saying if anybody who just wants to pack the court, that's another formalist move. Right. So so let's so so my my rebuttal and again yeah. I'm not as clear I'm not a, apologies to everyone I'm 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 feeling like crap. Oh, stop I, need, I need to take some Nyquil and uh, hit the sheets but uh, I digress. So like a female PhD student not a big bro PhD student. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my my rebuttal uh, to these people has been that I don't agree actually that the Supreme Court it will necessarily undermine or overturn every piece of progressive and radical legislation going forward. Uh, first and foremost, that's not how the Supreme Court works. And so I think now we want to take this opportunity to wrap up this episode. Let's assess these claims by really getting into specifics in terms of how this, how this works. How is a, a, a case 
uh, addressed, overturned? How is it heard? On what grounds? Walk us through that process. It's my understanding <laughs> that certain groups in civil society or perhaps uh, state attorneys general will uh, bring forth a certain kind of challenge on specific grounds of a law. Okay. Right. Um, it's not as though uh, Roberts, Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, just says, you know what, I'm a fucking conservative and I don't like this Medicare for all shit, so I'm going to strike it down. Right? Yeah. Like, there has to be specific challenges. Well, you have to have an actual controversy. There has to be a specific challenge on yeah. specific grounds. It has to be heard and you have on to have those standing. <laughs> you have yeah. to have standing to hear those yeah. grounds. Um, well, so, you have to have standing to be heard. Yeah. Be, so, so what? So what? So I don't know. I mean, we're, I'm asking a very. I mean, that's very law school when it went. But I, I, I mean, so I mean, the basic idea is how are you asking how does something get to court? How does something get to court? And in terms of like, bring us like to, walk us through the for a constitutional challenge. Yeah, walk us through the complexity of that case because I think that there's just this well, kind of uh, this kind of I don't know. I mean, I, there are a lot of very smart people who are saying this, and I don't. And some of them are friends of mine, so I sir, I want to be I want to be as fair as possible. That's the problem. I just want to make sure they, I know. So what they seem I know to have this under this seem to have this kind of um 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 um. um see, I was going to say histrionic. Now that's not being fair, is it? But they they have this Sometimes. very kind of panic stricken histrionic. A desire, a demand that we need to pack the court, abolish the court, or what have you, because there's just no way now that we uh, we socialists can ever get anything done. And so, step one has to be that we need to pack the court, because uh, you know they'll cite uh, they'll cite a number of cases where certain a- aspects of progressive legislation has been struck down on right. certain uh, on certain grounds or whatever. And then they sort of use that in a, and they generalize to say that how, well, you know, these conservative justices will just strike down whatever they feel like. Yeah, they will. Uh, in terms of progressive Once. cases. Uh, but that's not – but we're skipping over a lot of specific, specifics in terms of how that, that plays out. And yeah, I think so specifics, all of that can happen in various, various ways. Like there are yeah. many different ways that a, that a, that a, a case or, con- or controversy can end up in the court system. Right. Um, it's not always that. got to do with a constitutional issue. The, um, I mean the very basic idea is that somebody's interests have to be at stake. A party's interests have to be at stake. They need to be alleging that there's a harm or a breach of a duty or obligation that's owed towards them. Uh, and then, in other words, it has to be an actual legal duty, right, that um, has somehow been not carried out, that they are owed. Uh, and then they need to – they want to vindicate their their right or what's what's due to them by going to the court system to, to, to operationalize their, their legal claim. And they need to have standing in order to in order to do that. In other words, in general, that means they need to have been personally affected by what they're claiming is um, a misapplication or non-application of law, for example. So, uh, you know, all of the and and you know, <laughs> so this there that can really get quite complicated. But but basically, that in order in order to get a, a case into the court system, you need that. But it's not that all cases can somehow you know magically ratchet up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court needs to make uh, review decisions that. Um, so, firstly, not all legal decisions have a right of appeal to the Supreme Court, right? right? Those that do, uh, the Supreme Court, like the the court itself, is going to evaluate them and decide whether to grant leave. Uh, to actually have the case heard or not, only a very small fraction of cases that attempt to get to the Supreme Court are heard. Um, and there you know, are a lot of considerations that go into that, but including the seriousness and, and, and importance of the matter for the further development of the law. 
um, mm. to society in general. So that's like a very, very quick and dirty, like, I mean, you know, so I would say the following and I don't, and I don't think this is, has because of, of the, the real sudden resurgence of, and I think it's good, but the sudden resurgence of like the left with respect, uh, the resurgence of interest of the left with respect to the law and the legal system is really interesting. Um, and important. And I would urge people, particularly Americans who are really in America and concerned about all of this to, you know, and it's having an impact on their daily lives to actually, you know, take out a book on constitutional law. Oh, right. Yes. Because part oh, of, yeah. no, but, 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 <laughs> but honestly, part of, part of what's going on here is, is part of what's necessitated is the demystification Right, right. Oh, I the hear you. Yeah. Plus, you can use it for bicep curls when you get uh, tired of that's reading. That's true. Between, totally can. But you know? so everyone wants to say the or courts like are elitist and we should abolish them because they're elitist and they serve the interests of the rich. And it's like, well, yeah, but how are they elitist? They're elitist because they have the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the knowledge right. is not locked behind some gate. It's not, you know, the, right, the 17th right. century. So. And so building on that point, no, no, that, that's very, actually, that's very, very important. So building on this point, um, we'll return uh, to the specifics in terms of how a, a law uh, gets challenged and who brings forth the case. Because I think that, you know, you, you made a very, it was very, very adept. It's almost like you're a law professor. Holy shit. Uh, a very adept uh, kind of response to, is in terms of generalities as to how that, how that shakes down. Uh, when it's all in reality, I can say at this point, because it is, it's really right. that complicated you need to do, but, but yeah, I mean, it's all about, but I mean, this is, if, if there was any, You've, you've taught me this, I think, more than anyone in terms of how I assess this now. And you've, you've insisted many, many times when I've asked you sort of uh, these kind of naive, novice questions, right? It's like you insist the fact that actually you can't talk about generalities when it comes to law. Like everything is specific, right? So the case law, the, the, the standing, the grounds, the everything. It's well, the all, facts of the case. The like facts we of the say. case are everything. Um, and having not been to law school, I've had to sort of learn that uh, in, a, in a really uh, quick and dirty way in the past couple of weeks. But your, but your point is well taken because I think um, uh, I believe it was Sam Moyne in his Boston Review piece yeah. has said recently that actually, you know, that it's not necessarily the case that um, uh, progressive law and progressive standing is, is the only vulnerable aspect of, of the legal whatever apparatus. Right. There, there, there are a lot of challenges that are ripe. Uh, from our perspective, for, for our aims, right? I mean, you could, uh, one of the examples he raises, you could uh, use the kind of nature, the fact that um, um, the complexity of the economy and democratic input requires a positive right to, to unions or something like that, right? And so, so there's certain kinds of approaches and certain kinds of ways in which you could get standing for progressive policies based on this kind of bourgeois liberal constitutionality. Well, or whatever. there's room... The, the the point of the so okay so so there's the fact that the system is set up around the recognition and furtherance of individual rights that um, I've described at length doesn't mean that there's not room for creative and progressive and left engagement with the system right so there are myriad ways in which we, you know creative and interesting arguments and also um, tactical approaches to the court system um, can, can be made. And so I'll just give you an example from, it's out of my own 
life and milieu and it, it happens to be international but but that, I mean, a lot of what I do is international law but I but I and this is great so I'll give them a shout out and you can put put this in the show notes but um but an NGO that that I'm affiliated with and, and many of my good friends and colleagues work work for it is called um GLAN <laughs> so G-L-A-N the Global Legal Action Network mm. um does strategic human rights um, activist interventions. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll invoke various aspects of legal systems in new and interesting ways that wouldn't be anticipated before. Um, and also that are pretty much usually doomed to fail, Hmm. but, but that will garner, for example, um, a huge amount of, of public discussion and awareness around an issue. Right. Uh, so one example is they're currently working on an act, a legal action. They're trying to sue all member states of the European Union before the European Court of Human Rights um, uh, 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 on behalf of a group of Portuguese children who suffered during during um, the wildfires in Portugal, which were caused by um, climate change. And so this is effectively a climate change case. They have incredibly interesting arguments about things like jurisdiction and standing probably will fail, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but is making a huge impact nevertheless. Right. So that's just one example of like, there are so many um, really interesting and innovative ways in which the system can be engaged with. Like, I don't want to say on its own terms, but notwithstanding its own terms. In other words, so this, so this like a sentiment that we need to like get rid of it all is really infantile and actually I think reactionary. Right. And it and it and it betrays a real lack of understanding of the nuance of the ways in engaging uh, in the system as they exist. Mm-hmm. It also sort of disempowers us in terms of producing those actual yeah uh, those yeah actual absolutely plans and policies. Yeah. Whereas we need to be thinking very creatively and and um, you know and positively and strategically in terms of how to work with the the world that that uh, that 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 we have. Right? It's not the one yeah, we want. And not everybody has um, to be a lawyer or a legal expert, but I mean, yeah. if you're into it. But to be honest with you, like I hate to, you know, not I hate to say it. It's actually the fact politics. And if you want to be a political actor, you have to understand the legal system. It's in some respect, you do. Mm-hmm. You can't just pretend that it's this other thing. So, so let's take a final uh, example, and we'll we'll wrap up. I think with this with this case, um, yeah. with this particular example, because it's the one that's been thrown at me when I argue that actually the, the courts uh, can't necessarily prevent any and all progressive and radical action. Packing the court is not um, a prerequisite uh, You're so for a certain kind of political revolution. No, of course not. <laughs> Uh, so, but what's thrown at me by people who I think have a, a shoddy understanding of of the Supreme Court and the way it works? Uh, apologies. I'm sorry, people. but go read a book. Like, well, I mean, <laughs> easy for you I to say. You can just hand out Fs to your students. Okay, I have to. Uh, no, I have we're not allowed to, to fail people. Oh, yeah, that's they true. They really have to screw up. That's true. Uh, but you can hand out bad grades and, and make them cry uh, all weekend. Uh, I have to persuade. Then my they complain to me. <laughs> I have to I have to gently persuade my audience or else they'll just turn me off and go listen to someone else who says what they want to hear, um, which is what happens on the left far too much. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about National Federation of Independent Bu- Business versus Sibelius. It's one of the landmark cases that tested the constitution- constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. In particular, uh, it assessed the individual mandate. 
uh, demand there and uh, the Medicaid ex- extension. Um, the individual mandate was in, in, in large part upheld. Um, it was deemed by a 5-4 majority. Justice Chief Justice Roberts uh, 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 ruled in favor alongside the more uh, liberal justices that were on the court at the time to yeah. uphold the individual mandate. He said it was a legitimate tax, and according to the Constitution, uh, it's it's in line with the with Congress's taxing power. And so he used this kind of bullshit originalism to uphold the individual mandate. Um, the uh, Medicaid extension, however, was deemed to be um, not kosher for a, a variety of ways. Um, for one, I think it was a it was a reinterpretation of federalism. It was a claim that the federal government cannot make such a drastic demand on the states. Uh, basically, they were saying that the federal government was trying to force states to apply this Medicaid extension upon pain of losing Medicaid funding altogether. Yeah. Um, so it was a very, it was all or nothing uh, in, from the, the majority. I believe it was a, um, a was it a seven? I think it was a seven two majority. Uh, Kagan and um, Kennedy also voted in favor of that. Basically, Chief Justice Roberts argued that this was a challenge to federalism and it probably didn't belong in the ACA to begin with. It should have been a separate act altogether. That was his sort of understanding. Okay. But what does that have to do with abolish the court? Uh, because or sorry, this is, pack the court. This is oftentimes this, – this particular this particular outcome is oftentimes held up as a, as a reason as to why these reactionary justices can overturn – Attempts to produce progressive okay. and radical legislation. I c- can I just so I really need, I think people need to understand that like you can one can achieve virtually any outcome that one wants in perfectly plausible legal language with whatever situation contra- case or controversy is before you. So the, 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 the law is is and this is like an, an insight of there's nothing particularly special about le- like legal reasoning as such. This is a key insight of, of critical legal studies. Not everyone will agree with this. A lot of, there are other camps that think, well, there are interpretations of the law that are more or less demonstrating integrity, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, but at the end of the day, sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it takes less work. Sometimes it, it takes less posturing to get to the outcome you want. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it, you know, you can do as a judge, whatever you want. It's just about dressing it up in language that is meant to convince and persuade. And that language is legal language, which has immense authority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I really have to like admit, like maybe I'm missing something and I'm, ha- I'm happy to be told if I am, but I really do feel like there's not a lot um, to be said there other than that. And also port- court packing goes the other way as well. Well, that's that's. Firstly, I mean, we don't that's, have the power to pack the court right now, and even if we did, we, right? So there's nothing stopping conservatives from packing the court. I haven't seen any arguments um, uh, so, that actually well, assess the potential downsides and, and well, uh, yeah. negative aspects of of the other side of the coin, right? They always, anytime we envision a right uh, or an authority, we always imagine that the good guys are in power to to hey. you know to spell out the also, content. Also, by the way, rights are used to right do all sorts of horrible things. So, so let's get more concrete though, because I understand what you're saying, but I, but but what but but what you just sort of laid out can can also be wielded, I think, by the people who say that you need to pack the court as a prerequisite to doing anything, because if 
if that is the case, if you can't actually what do you mean use a prerequisite, that's just faulty language because prerequisite to do anything, action doesn't start at the court level. Action starts at the legislative level. Right. So I think that's we're actually that's at the really grassroots issue. political level before. So by the time you get to the court system, you're at the end of the road. Right. In terms of getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. So I think that the one of the things that you would have to then demonstrate in order to make my case is is that a couple of things. Uh, the ACA was just one way and it was a very bad way. I think we all agree. And this is what's so odd that I have to even make this case at all to leftists, to socialists. The yep. ACA was a very bad way to provide health care uh, to the masses. It was very, very bad. We, we, all, we all know that by now, right? I mean, the individual mandate was just leaving to market forces. Uh, the, well, yeah. the, the, the so-called market, uh, the marketplace has all but collapsed. The, the insurance premiums are through the roof. You know, it's it's just, it's a fucking mess. It's right, a shit so that's show. a failure of politics. That's it's a failure, a failure of politics of and legal imagination and the willpower, like I said, the political will of yeah, exactly. these mainstream neoliberal Democrat hacks to challenge their base and do do what the vast majority of Americans want them to do, and so so it, it was the fact that the, the law was poorly written, and it was it was um, therefore under threat from day one to these kind of challenges. That that particular aspect of the law was struck struck down, um, and so I think that like my inclination to insist on the fact that court packing falls for the Democrats' logic yep. about the importance and the role of the court, it lets them off the hook. And we got to stop letting these neoliberal mainstream hack Democrats off the hook. We got to stop letting them off the hook. They failed us. They will continue to fail us. And this idea that uh, the courts have are the reason why they've been failing us uh, just can't be. It just can't. It just can't stand any. It's like it's like it's like that guy. So uh, Chapo likes to play with this metaphor. Just bear with me for a minute because this is going to be good. I think maybe I don't know. I have I have like enough energy for one little anecdote. So it's like that guy. We all have a friend, maybe, or we've all known a guy like this who, like, he's a big talker. And when he he, he, he goes out to the bar, right, and and after, you know, he's like, well, I, this guy looked at me and, you know, and it's like, ah, I would have I fucked him up, but the bouncer was looking my direction, you know, or like, or the whole thing, like, uh, you know, and somebody's in a fight and it's like, hold me back, bro, you know, like, oh, I'd have hit him. I would have fucked him up so bad if, you know, this guy wasn't holding me back or whatever, you know. And he's always talking, right, always, you know making excuses for why he didn't kick this guy's ass or why he didn't talk to this girl or whatever else, right? That's the Democratic Party here. The Democratic Party is making up excuses as to why they've had their tail between their legs for the past 30 or 40 some odd years. And the court is the reason. And it also operates as an odd rationale as to why we should be voting for them, despite the fact that they're not delivering anything. So it's it's a really kind of um, cynical, dual-sided, uh, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know, that was a shitty anecdote, but you get my point. I think well, that people who insist on court packing are falling for that same Well, they're fetishizing logic. the court, They're fetishizing the court in the same way that the, 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 the Democratic Party elites have been doing for the past four yeah. years. Oh, it's silly. Yeah, anyway. But also, it's really, it's not only that, it's really, like, uh, de- dis- disempowering. Because right. it tells you that actually the center of politics should be somehow in the Supreme Court, which is complete nonsense. Right, right. We need to do the exact the exact opposite, which is to remove. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and again, uh, Sam Moyne has some really really interesting um, kind of uh, thought experiments that he plays out in his Boston Review piece. It's in the show notes. Um, Jed Purdy lays out a couple concrete alternatives to packing the court, which undermines the kind of uh, Supreme Court fetishization that packing the court arguments seem to rely on. 
Man, you got to so let it go. Simple. You've got this fetish in your craw. I do, man. It's really it's not a good man. argument. I think it, honestly, I think it's like <laughs> been stressing me out. Uh, and it's I know. probably the Just reason why I got Promise sick. You let it right? go after today. It's probably the reason why I got sick and why it feels like such trash right now. Uh, well, I got to tell you, it's Canadian Thanksgiving here. So indeed it is. I've got to go eat something. Yeah, we're going to let you go. <laughs> Any final words? Uh, you spelled. You, you, I think no. you've, you've given us a lot. Uh, I mean, clearly, it's, it would be uh, insane to ask you to, to, you know, give us a four four year law degree in, in uh, an hour and a half of Dead Punnett Society. But no, but uh, I do think people like part of the. I do. I will say this, and I think it's important, right? Like we, we're really interested in demystifying law and de elitizing its practice and profession, and you know, uh, and that includes a little bit of like, well, let's just educate ourselves a little bit about the legal structure that we're talking about before we start making, um, not before we start talking about it, but just so that we can start making really like well-informed um, and politically useful interventions, which everybody is capable of, right? There's nothing that's about, like I said before, a key insight of, of the school of thought that I work in is to say there's not actually that anything all that special about legal reasoning. Mm-hmm. Right? As opposed to ordinary reasoning, it is a script and you have to learn it to understand it and to be able to move within it. But it's not, uh, it's not alien right? or Greek or something like this. You know, it's, it's very, it's very, you know, one, one can, one can move within those, those, those um, avenues of power. You don't have to abolish the avenue of power in order to make sense of it. Right. Right on, right on. I think we've all learned a lot. We'll have to continue learning this particular case if if, if it's done nothing positive in terms of uh, bringing an asshole like Kavanaugh to the court. Uh, it's at sure. least challenged us to raise our level of knowledge with respect to the court and the law and so on. And uh, yeah, Heidi, I'm going to go take some NyQuil. You're going to eat some turkey. <laughs> and uh, thanks so much for joining us once again. Your piece is already up. It's in theconversation.com. The it's in the show notes. It's called... Maybe .ca, I'm not sure, but it's in your show notes. Yeah, yeah, it's in the show notes. It's .com, I'm not sure. forward slash .ca. I'm not sure if you Canucks have converted it to a .ca address if you're up there. I'm sure it'll 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 do the appropriate thing once you click on the link. But uh, that article's called Why the Kavanaugh Hearings Were a Show Trial Gone Bad. Heidi Matthews, thanks again for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Thanks so much. Oh, this you crazy mother...